Good morning, Embassy Arlington. I'm Joe Carter. I'm one of the pastors for our location. And it's always a privilege and an honor to be able to share the word of God from this pulpit with you. But I've been especially grateful for the past 18 months. Eric and I have been able to do it from this building. Um, if you're new to NBC, you may not know that we haven't always had a building. In fact, before the pandemic, three years ago, we used to share a building with a Methodist church in Roslyn. And we used to meet there on Sunday nights. And that church building was built in the 1970s. And it looked like a church that was built in the 1970s. Um, but I was always kind of found the building kind of charming, except for this one thing. In the auditorium, there was these big, massive pictures depicting the life of Jesus. And something about those paintings just always annoyed me. And I could never put my finger exactly on it. And a lot of people probably assume it was because they made Jesus look like he was from Sweden rather than from Judea. But that wasn't really the problem. There was something else about it that kind of annoyed me. <laughs> and it wasn't until I started reading the text today that I kind of put my finger on what exactly it was. The text made me realize that what was wrong with those paintings was nobody would see those Jesus in those paintings and say, come, let us kill him. The Jesus in those paintings seemed rather harmless. And who wants to kill somebody that's harmless? The Jesus in those paintings was completely non-threatening. And why do you need to kill somebody who isn't a threat? And that's the problem. If you don't know why people want to kill Jesus, if you don't know why you want to kill Jesus, or maybe in your past life you wanted to kill Jesus, then maybe it's because you don't really know Jesus. And you may think I'm exaggerating. You may be thinking, nobody in this room wants to kill Jesus. Nobody in this room ever wants to kill Jesus. And I realize that kind of seems like an absurd claim. It was absurd when Jesus said it too. In the Gospel of John, Jesus asked the people around him, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? People constantly denied that they wanted to kill Jesus right up until the time they killed Jesus. And we do the same thing. We all have, at some point in our life, had that same motive to kill Jesus. We just hadn't had the same opportunity. And what bothered me so much about these, those paintings was that it made me wonder how often I was doing the same thing. How often I was betraying when I preach or teach or share the gospel with some unbeliever that I present Jesus as non-threatening. That I present him as so harmless that nobody could possibly ever hate him. And I certainly don't mean to say that we should betray a Jesus that is hateful. Too many Christians are obnoxious and hateful. And they try to make Jesus out the same way. But that's not what I'm talking about. There's nothing hateful about Jesus. And yet still people hated him. And hated him enough to want to kill him. Why is that? And that's the question I want to explore with, us, with you today in this text. I want us to search for the answer to the question. What is it about Jesus that made people hate him so much they wanted to kill him? Before we start searching for that answer though, let me pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together this morning to worship you. As we read your holy word, we ask that you open our eyes and soften our hearts so we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Help us to clearly understand how hatred for your son has warped our souls and let us leave with a greater sense of how your love and mercy has healed us and set us free. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading from verse 27 
through chapter 12, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent servants to the tenant to give from them some, some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, referring to the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And to understand what we're looking at in the scene, we need to understand the broader context of this exchange. And we see a theme that occurs frequently throughout the Gospel of Mark. The religious leaders come and they challenge the authority of Jesus. And they recognize they've treated him as a rabbi. And at the time, this wasn't some formal office or authority. This was just a title that we gave to a teacher who taught scripture. And just like in our age, there are certain informal rules that go along with confrontational exchanges. And one of the informal rules of debate at that time was that if you confronted a teacher and you asked them a question, well, they could ask a question in return. It was kind of, you had to agree to their question before they had to answer yours. So Jesus takes advantage of this custom and he asked them a question. In chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus asked them a question that seems pretty irrelevant. It doesn't seem to really fit what they're talking about. He asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So why does, John bring, why does Jesus bring up the baptism of John? Well, he does so because it is connected to the question they are asking him. If you go back to the very first book, chapter in the book of Mark, you'll see John baptizing Jesus. And a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus asked them about John's baptism because he knows they can't answer in a way that's going to make them come off looking good. If the religious leaders admit that John's baptism is from God, then they must accept Jesus is the son of God. Because it was during one of John's baptisms that that message came upon Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to make the connection to baptism even more clear. In the parable, this parable, which is often called the parable of the wicked tenants. And this parable is allegorical in that 
the figures in the parable represent actual people, actual people throughout history. And the vineyard in this parable represents Israel, the people of God. And the owner of the vineyard is God himself. And the servants sent by the owner represent the prophets of the Old Testament, real prophets, some who were beaten and some who were killed. And the wicked tenants are the religious leaders throughout Israel's history. And in this parable, of course, Jesus is the beloved son. In verse 6, it says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. And Jesus used this same term, beloved son, that was used about him when John baptized him. However, there's a hint of irony when it says they will respect my son. Because in the parable, they do not respect the son. And when God the Father sent Jesus to earth, they, he knew they wouldn't respect the son. He knew that they would hate him and that they would kill him. And why did they hate him so much that they want to kill him? Well, because he was the son of God. This leads to the first answer to our question. People want to kill Jesus because Jesus is God and people hate God. Now, some Christians have a hard time accepting this reality. We tend to think that if people only understood that Jesus truly is the son of God, that they would bow down and worship him. They would follow him. But oftentimes people do indeed recognize that Jesus is God. And that's why they want to kill him. People hate God. And if Jesus is God, well, then they hate Jesus too. Let me explain what I mean by that. To understand what we mean by hate, it's helpful to look at the opposite, love. Now, some of you are already thinking to yourself that I'm wrong about that. You may be thinking, as the Holocaust survivor and novelist Eli Wiesel used to say, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. But hold that thought for just a moment as we define some terms. First, we need to understand what we mean by love. What does it mean to love? The philosopher Joseph, the philosopher Joseph Pieper once examined all the various meanings and connections to the terms that we use referring to love. He wanted to figure out what's the core element that's connected to all these things, that we, all the forms that we call love. And to this he said, my tentative answer to this question runs as follows. In every conceivable case, love signifies much the same as approval. This is first of all to be taken in a little sense the word's root. Loving someone or something means finding in him that probes the Latin word for good. It is a way of turning to him or it and saying, it's good that you exist. It's good that you are in the world. When we love somebody, we're saying, it's good that you exist. It's good that you are in the world. And when we really love somebody, we're saying, it's good that you exist. It's good that you are in the world. And it's good that you're in my life. Indifference and apathy are indeed on the opposite side of love. But so is hate. On one side you have love, and on the other side it branches off. The first branch is apathy or indifference. To be indifferent to people is to be aware of them, but to shrug and say, it doesn't matter if they exist. It doesn't really matter if they're in the world. That's the opposite of love. And then on the other branch is hate. Hate is saying it would be better if you did not exist. It would be better if you were not in the world. And it would be best of all if you were not in my life. When you were a teenager, did you ever say to your mom and dad, I hate you? 
Now, some of us only sit on our heads because we didn't want to get smacked. <laughs> but, my, but most of us at some time have felt that way about our parents. And ten, teens tend to hate their parents and say they hate their parents when they're angry because they don't get what they want. Saying I hate you to mom and dad is a way of saying it would be better if you were not in my life. It would be better if you were not in my world. And it's a dumb thing to say, of course, because most teens would starve quickly if their parents didn't feed them. But that's what kids are feeling when they say that they hate their parents. And that's what I mean by hate. Thinking it would be better if someone did not exist. Because that's the way we hate God. All of us, either now or in the past, have said in our hearts and shown by our actions that we think it would be better if God did not exist. We think it would be better if God were not in the world. And we think it would be best of all if God were not in our lives. As theologian R.C. Sproul once said, if we are unconverted, one thing is absolutely certain. We hate God. The Bible is unambiguous at this point. We are God's enemies. We are inwardly sworn to his ultimate destruction. It is as natural for us to hate God as it is for the rain to moisten the earth when it falls. Now, we heartily disavow what I have just written. We are quite willing to acknowledge that we are sinners. We are quick to admit that we do not love God as much as we ought. But who among us is willing to admit hating God? We certainly don't want to admit that we hate God, do we? We like to think we're good people. Good people don't hate. Good people don't kill. So good people don't hate or kill, want to kill Jesus. What if the means of killing God were actually possible? What if it were not only possible, what if it was easy? What if we could snap our fingers and God would no longer exist? I remember a couple of years ago, the Marvel movie, Avengers Infinity War. And there was a villain called Thanos who had the Infinity Gullet. And when he snapped his fingers, half of all, hum- all life in the universe ceased to exist. Now imagine if the unconverted people had that power. Imagine if you had that power before you came to know Jesus. Imagine if you could snap your fingers and God would cease to exist. Are you going to tell me you wouldn't use that power? As Sproul added, if God were to expose his life to our hands, he would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore him. We would destroy him. This charge may seem extravagant and irresponsible until we examine once more the record of what happened when God did appear in Christ. Christ was not simply killed. He was murdered by malicious people. The people that killed Jesus because they hate God and Jesus is God. But what is the reason for that hate? Why do we hate God so much? And the religious leaders that are converting Jesus in Mark 11 once again show us part of the answer. Notice the question they asked Jesus. Whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus comes into the temple and he's turning over tables and he's disrupting business. And I'm like, who gave you the authority to do that? They certainly didn't. They were the leaders of the day. They didn't give them authority. So where did he get it from? And notice there were three groups representing various authorities in the time. You had the chief priest. You had the teachers of the law. And you had the elders. And it would be like if the mayor's office, the city council, And some district judges all came together and said, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to determine the zoning laws and say who can and can't do business in the temple? 
And when we read this exchange, we think, well, the religious authorities are the bad guys, so we must be against them. And they are indeed the bad guys, as we'll see in later chapters of Mark. But their question about who, why Jesus has the authority to do the things he did is not unreasonable. Because these groups represented the community of Jewish people, but the Roman authorities were actually the ones in charge. And anything that disrupted the delicate balance between the Jews and the Romans had to be considered a serious threat. Now, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people start treating him like a king, that's a threat to the Roman authorities. And when Jesus comes to the temple and he's overturning the money changers' tables, well, that's a threat to the Jewish leaders. And the Gospel of John gives an example of just how serious the religious leaders took this threat to be. Chapter John chapter 11 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Their point was, this Jesus guy is going to get everybody killed. They're going to lose everything they have if they don't put a stop to him. They considered Jesus to be an existential threat to their way of life. And you know what? They weren't exactly wrong. The leaders were evil, but they had a clear understanding that Jesus was a threat. And that's something we often miss. Jesus is a threat. Indeed, Jesus is the greatest threat to your way of life that you will ever encounter. And that's why they hated him. To the Jewish leaders at the time, it was better if Jesus didn't exist. It was better if he not be in the world. And that's why if you don't perceive Jesus as a threat, then maybe you haven't encountered the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus is always a threat to sinners. Jesus himself makes this abundantly clear. His authority is a direct threat to our autonomy. And that's the second, and it's probably the most significant reason why people hate God and want Jesus to kill Jesus, because he's a threat to our autonomy. Autonomy is our ability to be self-governing. You have autonomy when you get to decide for yourself how you will live. You have autonomy when you get to decide for yourself what morals you're going to follow, what you're going to determine is good or bad, and which path you'll choose. Jesus is a threat to that autonomy because Jesus has authority. In fact, as Matthew 28, 18 tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this phrase, in heaven and on earth, that includes everything. Jesus is saying he has all authority over all things. And that all things includes your own life. That makes Jesus a threat to you. For example, Jesus is a threat to your family life. In Matthew 10, 37, he says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's a threat to your financial life. In Matthew 19, 24, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's a threat to your physical life. 
In Matthew 16, 24, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Unless you think he's exaggerating, Luke 14 makes it clear. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says you must renounce all that you have. And notice that this is the requirement to start following Jesus. He's not saying someday, maybe in the distant future, you may be called upon to renounce everything, take up your cross and follow me. No, he's saying you can't even begin to be his disciple until you renounce all that you have. That's the cost of discipleship. And it's a cost that has to be paid up front. The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a book about this title, The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is a result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Christ Jesus. The death of the old man at his call. And Bonhoeffer knew about the cost of discipleship. In 1943, he was arrested by the Nazis for plotting to assassinate Hitler. And in 1945, he was stripped of his clothes and forced to walk naked into the execution yard where he was hanged by the neck until he died. And that was the last time Bonhoeffer died. But like all true Christians, it wasn't the first time. He died first when he accepted the call to follow Jesus. The only people for whom Jesus is not an existential threat are people who have nothing to lose. And that ain't nobody in this room. If you think you don't have anything to lose, think about what would really happen if you lost your job or the money in your bank account or your status, or your reputation, or your comfort, you'd quickly see how much those things matter to you if you started to lose them. Yet that is exactly what Jesus is asking you to do. He's asking you to give up anything and everything that would prevent you from following him. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they may not have fully grasped all the nuances of that. What they didn't understand is that if Jesus has authority, that he's a threat to their autonomy. And that was a price they were unwilling to pay. So they hated Jesus. To them, it was better that he not exist. It was better that he not be in this world. And so they sought out how to kill him. And there are many other reasons why people hate Jesus and why they would want to kill him. 
But I think those two are the biggest reasons. People hate God, and Jesus is God. And Jesus is the greatest threat to your autonomy in existence. But I think there's one other reason we see in this passage. And it seems kind of unusual because it's not something we would expect. I think they hated God because God is patient and long-suffering. And I think God's patience is like an accelerant that fuels the hatred. It's like dumping lighter fluid on an already burning fire. So where do I get this idea from the text? Notice that Jesus' parable about the tenants has an unusual structure. Jesus could have told the story in a kind of simple three-pronged format. He could have said the landlord sends the servant, and then the landlord sends the son, and then the landlord himself comes and destroys the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. But instead, we get a story in which the landlord sends a servant who the tenants beat up. Then he sends another servant, and they strike this guy on the head and treat him shamefully. And then he sends yet another servant, and they kill this guy. And if that wasn't enough, the parable says the landlord sent many others, some who they beat and some who they killed. We don't even know how many people the landlord sent before he sent his son, only that it was many. So what's the point included in this detail in the story? They're included because they show how patient and long-suffering our God is. God patiently waits for you to turn to him and obey him and bear the fruit that he requires of you. He patiently waits even though people are violently against him, violently in rebellion against him. And I think this fuels the hatred for Jesus in two ways. First, people who are unrepentant, like the religious leaders in this text, know in their heart that there will come a day when God's patience is exhausted. And those who have rejected him are going to be cast out of his presence. And the parable makes it clear that God will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I think that deep down, all sinners recognize this. They know there's going to come a time when God's going to cast them out of their presence. I think it's part of the reason why so many people fear death. The anticipation of their demise causes them anxiety. And that anxiety fuels their hatred. But the second reason is that they mistake God's patient and long-suffering for weakness, as if God doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Or they confuse his patience with indifference, as if God doesn't care about suffering or pain. Just look at this parable. The landlord kept sending servants even after they were getting beaten up and killed. Now, from the viewpoint of the wicked servants, it seems like the landlord's too weak to take action. Or maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care that his people are getting beaten and killed. Or maybe he just doesn't exist. Maybe he died and he's not around anymore. And even Christians can make the same mistake. We often wonder why God doesn't do something about the evil and suffering in the world. Why doesn't, if he has the power, if he loves us, why doesn't he do something right now? We know he's not dead. We don't think he's too weak. And we trust that he cares. So what's he waiting on? Well, to get rid of evil and suffering, God has to get rid of sin. And where does sin originate? It originates in the human heart. Romans 5.12 tells us that all sin 
and all evil and suffering entered the world through one man, Adam. And then Romans 5, 17 also tells us that the solution to sin came through one man, Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus reconciles us to God individually, but that Jesus is also the Savior who will reconcile heaven and earth. God's purpose in his work of salvation is not to get us out of the earth. His work in reconciling is to reconcile heaven and earth so that he can come dwell with us in the new heaven and the new earth. But for the world to be reconciled to God, though, requires that all corrupted and destructive elements are rooted out and completely removed from the earth. But again, sin comes from the human heart. The sinful actions of humans lead to evil and suffering. So to remove evil and suffering requires removing unrepentant sinners. To remove sin, as the parable says, requires God to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is an essential point to understand. Evil and suffering will only end when God casts unrepentant sinners into hell. In the future, all these elements of sin and death and suffering will be contained in a place that the Bible calls hell. And hell is not some place underground. It's not some place below the earth. Hell is a place outside of the kingdom of God where all these elements are contained. Hell is a place for all the people who refuse to stop rebelling against God. It's a place for all the wicked tenants, for all the haters of God. And when God sends them to hell, then finally, we can be, the earth can be healed of sin. But that brings us back to our original question. Why doesn't God simply just perform this reconciliation right now? Why does he just remove all the sin and suffering from the earth right now, rather than some future time? And we don't have a full and complete answer to this question. We have to trust that God's timing is perfect, and there's a reason why he doesn't do it yet. But I do think this parable shows us one part of that reason. And part of that reason is God is patient. If you're a Christian, consider this question. Why didn't God come and cast all unrepentant sinners into hell the day before you were born? Presumably, the reason it hadn't occurred yet and the reason it didn't occur the day before you were born is because God wants you to be with him in his kingdom. Romans 8, 29 tells us that God knew whom he would choose even before we were born. He knew before the world was created. He knew who he would choose and who would give him a heart to love him. Romans 8, 28 also tells us that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him. And that includes not just us. It includes those who have not yet been born. Now we can pray as the apostle John does in Revelation 20, 20. Come, Lord Jesus. But we should also be open to God saying, not yet. There are more I want to bring to me. There's more people I want to bring into the kingdom of heaven. And some of those people aren't even born yet. We should be patient about enduring evil and suffering for that same reason. We should be patient because we too want these same people to be with us eternally in the kingdom of heaven. Just consider the people gathering in this room today. 
all across this room, there are babies in the mother's wombs that we haven't even met yet. And 10,000 years from now, we're going to be so grateful that God waited so that they could be born and be with us in the kingdom. And there's some unbelievers in this room who have not yet given their life to Jesus. And because God is patient, their hearts will soften and they will come to Christ. In a million years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to be so grateful that God waited for them so that we could be in the kingdom with them. And we can lament the sin and evil in the world and long for it to end. And yet we can still be grateful that God is patient. And then he allows things to continue as they are because there are people, born and unborn, who he has planned to be with him in heaven. God hates evil and sin more than we do. He hates it more than we can imagine. But as much as he hates those hellish elements, he loves his children even more. And that's just a few things I think we can see from this passage. People want to kill Jesus because people hate God and Jesus is God. People want to kill Jesus because Jesus has authority and his authority is a threat to our autonomy. And people want to kill Jesus because God is patient and forbearing. And the anticipation of the judgment that's coming caused them anxiety. So what then are we to do with this information? Well, the answer depends on whether you are a disciple of Jesus and whether you've given your life to him or whether you've not yet put your trust and faith in Christ. First, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should thank God for his patience. If he wasn't patient, you wouldn't be here right now and you wouldn't be with him in the future kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're not a believer, don't wait another day. Don't wait another day to repent of your sin. Set aside your hatred from God and put your faith in the Son. Don't wait until God's patience is exhausted. You don't know when it's gonna end, so don't wait another moment. Second, if you're a follower of Jesus, embrace the reality that he has all authority and all authority over your life. And the way to do that is to love him more by obeying him completely. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So show Jesus how much you love him by keeping his commands. And if you're not a believer, you should know that Jesus' authority is better by far than your own autonomy. You're trading trash for treasure. You're trading a little, something of little value for something of infinite value. Don't be afraid to give that up. Third, if you're a follower of Jesus, then do everything in your power to wear out those last vestiges of hate you have for God in your heart. We do this by trusting more fully in the gospel and reminding ourselves that the most perfect and beautiful being that ever existed loves us so much that he was willing to die for us when we still hated him. And if you're not a believer, you should know that the same good news is true for you too. While in your heart you may want to kill Jesus, he has already died for you so that you could be with God in eternal happiness. And finally, for all of us, we need to embrace the truth and be able to say, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Look upon Jesus and say, it is good that you are in the world. It is good that you exist, and it is good that you are in my life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed that when we hated you, you loved us. You loved us enough to send your beloved son to rescue us. And yet we desired in our hearts to kill him and be free from his authority. Lord, we are so grateful you rescued us from our own foolishness and our own slavery to sin. When we were seeking to find inferior pleasure in the things of this world, you made it possible for us to have the greatest pleasure of all. We thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Help us to seek your face so that we may find fullness of joy. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.